Dear artists, welcome to another episode of the From the Ground Up podcast produced for HowlRound Theatre Commons, a free and open platform for theatre makers worldwide. I'm your host, Jeffrey Moser, recording from the ancestral homelands of the Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee, now known as Milwaukee, Wisconsin. These episodes are shared digitally to the internet. Let's take a moment to consider the legacy of colonization embedded within the technology, structure, and ways of thinking that we use every day. We are using equipment and high-speed internet not available in many indigenous communities. Even the technologies that are central to much of the work we make leave a significant carbon footprint contributing to climate change that disproportionately affects indigenous people worldwide. I invite you to join me in acknowledging the truth and violence perpetrated in the name of this country as well as our shared responsibility to make good of this time and for each of us to consider our roles in reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship. Dear artists, so glad you could join me once again. Welcome to From the Ground Up, and thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I have to tell you that today's episode with folks from Double Edge is really important to me. I did their summer training institute in 2013, and it was an amazing experience. I have some real stories that I'd love to tell you about, but it would take the entire episode. Not even kidding. What I will tell you is that I never felt so connected to an artistic space. It is deeply rural. Each morning, I walked from our housing to the farm. The roads were narrow. The horizons were wide. It was really exceptional to slow down. There are artists I met there from around the country, and it was a really beautiful way to be making thoughtful, physically exhausting, emotional work. And at the end of the program, I swear that I was the healthiest that I had ever been. Healthy food, physical exercises, training the body, all these amazing things all coming to fruition while spending time in beautiful Ashfield, Massachusetts. Hey, I said this in my last episode, but if you are a fan of From the Ground Up, please find, follow, and favorite us on Instagram and on Twitter at FTGU underscore pod or email me at FTGUpod at gmail.com. I'd love to know more about you and what you want to hear about on this show. Seriously, thank you in advance. Today, we've got Carlos Oriona and Jennifer Johnson, co-artistic directors at Double Edge Theater in Ashfield, Massachusetts, coming to us from the land of the Nipmuc, Pakamtuk, and Mohican tribes, as well as on the land of Wabanaki Confederacy. I wanted to talk to them because they are doing work that is sustainable in such a beautiful way. They moved out to Ashfield from Boston in 1994, and Double Edge has been rural with a capital rural ever since. They are located on a farm where they all live, work, and create. Their work often incorporates the beautiful outdoor settings as well. Going off of what Jawale mentioned in episode one of season three, so just before this, festivals deserve to be in rural spaces. At the time of this recording, they were putting on the Magdalena Festival, an international festival that has its roots in Wales, but goes everywhere. Stacy Klein, the founding artistic director of Double Edge, has experienced it, and I'll let the rest be revealed in this interview. Something you ought to know before we go in. We mentioned the Odin Theater in Denmark and Eugenio Barba. I'll make sure to put a link to them on the show page for you at howround.com. I'm really grateful to share this interview with y'all as it does much more than just provide a trip down memory lane for me. 
Our call was held on April 25th, 2022. Please enjoy. Well, folks, really quickly, thank you so much for taking time to do this. I know you're coming off of a really big celebration and a lot of work that's been done and a lot of energy that's gone into this. So I really, I have to say that I appreciate your time and the energy, the time we spent together and the time we're spending together. Like it's all very real for me. And I thank you so much for taking time to do this. I don't know why it's taken me so long to get back to you all, but I'm so glad to be having this conversation now because you know, what you are talking about just in your lightning round of like market economy and transactionalness and like the, just the idea of y'all going out to the farm and establishing yourselves there and, and recreating what, what it means to make in a way that is sustainable to you. And in that, in that process is so fascinating and so interesting to me. But ultimately I want to know what, like what has sustained you. And we, I remember being with you for the art and survival conference in 2014, 13, 14, 15, and having that very rich conversation. But before we get too far away from the moment that you just had, I want to, my first question to you all is just, can you tell me a little bit about your celebration that you just held for your 40th anniversary for rights and what is something that you learned from such a such a great celebration of yourselves and of the cultures that you've brought into town sure absolutely so um it is really nice to connect with you and uh it's a perfect opportunity because double edge is celebrating our 40th anniversary this year so um, we have a lot to look back at and a lot to look forward to. So I, I think it's a perfect moment for us to connect. Um, so we have a five month celebration of our 40th anniversary. And this was the first event. So we have three sort of big highlights of this five month period. Um, and we, the first is uh, a Magdalena festival here at Double Edge. I can talk about that. The next is um, the Constellations Outdoor Performance Festival featuring some of our partners. We can talk about that. And then the summer we will be performing uh, and premiering our new performance for outdoors, The Hidden Territories of the Bacchae. So it's these sort of three big events back to back um, and they will buoy us through these busy moments because it's very exciting. Um, yes, today, as we're sitting here, international guests are being loaded into cars and taken to the airport. And, or walking around uh, in, the, in the gardens. And, you know, we can see them from the window. They're, they're roaming around the farm. Absolutely. Somehow reflecting on what just has ha had happened. Right. Right off the bat, I'm wondering why it's important to feature international artists. <laughs> Um, at such a festival? Absolutely. Um, well, first, we are an in international ensemble. Um, we are a multinational group of people working together. Um, Magdalena is an international festival oh, oh, and an international project, project and organization. Yeah. Um, uh, it includes uh, artists from all over the world. Um, Magdalena and Double Edge are important together because um, Stacy attended the first Magdalena Festival in Wales, um, hosted and organized by um, Jill Greenhalge and uh, Getty Onyxdal, among others. And 
Uh, Stacy had established Double Edge about three or four years earlier and came to this festival because she was uh, very interested in the work of uh, women artists and uh, Double Edge at that point was founded as a women-centric feminist ensemble. On the bus ride to Cardiff, um, she rode uh, with Getty Onyxdal, who's one of the people who's leaving here today. And that began a long, long relationship, friendship and artistic exchange relationship that's gone on until today, literally today. Um, so Double Edge has attended different Magdalena performances and these two organizations have really grown into um, much larger, inclusive, uh, cultural uh, organizations that um, have both blossomed in their way. So yeah. it was a really great way to, to kick off um, what is the start of this celebration. I think that historically Double Edge always had um, an eye on uh, Stacy, when she was already studying, she chose to study things from abroad and she believed in the Polish theater very deeply, but then traveling and going to Poland during the, the harsh years of the 70s and meeting Rena Mirecka and Grotowski and Cantor and other artists and then meeting Odin Theater and being with them and writing a dissertation on, on Eugenia Barba's work. Um, she found that there was there were things that here in the US, at least they were not av that available, right? And when you go to Latin America, like, like what I was telling you about Jujashkani, you see something that you, that could be potentially created here, but it's not being created for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. But, but going abroad, going to Asia or meeting people from Asia, you start learning things that in, in your, environment you don't have. Uh, I come from Argentina and for us it was crucial to see people from abroad. It was, uh, otherwise everything became very, um, I would like to say med mediocre, like uh, washed, washed out or, or a repetitive sort of theater or, or money or a, let's say performance, artistic manifestation. Uh, so, when you when you travel and you see a lot of really things that are not attractive or they're not at the level that maybe you would love them to be but um a lot of times you get surprises and you're like wow i i would like like we just said you know about anna from just County, i would like to be that 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 type of actor um and then the thing is you know last night before they left this morning they left at, at, at 7 a.m so we had a meeting at, at the very last time and we already committed to get together and at least have exchanges because they are also very attracted to what we do and they think that what we do is unique and it hasn't been done in the world and what she said after you know after 50 years of working in theater this to me is a discovery to i discovered double-edged theater i heard you know vaguely about you guys but now i'm like surprised of what you do and how you connect with everything so there is always this learning component in the international, <clears throat> but I would like to say that one of the key, and this relates to sustainability, is that we don't just work on the international. We work as intentionally in the international as we work in the national, as we work on the regional, and then as we work on the 
hyper-local. So there are four theaters in Ashfield, four theaters in Ashfield, and there are 1,700 inhabitants in this town, right? So the, we are trying to, it's not that it's our responsibility, or we, I cannot create double H for the four theaters, but I do think that there is something about us being here that had infused the, 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 the little town with that sort of encouragement to do something like that. Not only that, but, you know, there are 10 kids in the last 20 years that came from Ashfield schools, the elementary school and the middle school, that are now actors. 10. If you can, you know, the Pacosas, the, mm-hmm. the Gabriel, mm-hmm. the, the, that's four there, Bianchi. Mm-hmm. I can count them out loud. Yeah. <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to know a little bit more, Carlos, how you talked about how you work on the hyper-local to the international. And how are you working at those scales at any given time? Let's say skill is patience and, and also to focus on the process. So let me go back and, and, and let me merge some of these subjects. Otherwise, we, we go into too specific. But you, you talk about sustainability. Our training method and the fact that we, we focus the creation of the ensemble in the autonomy of the actor. So each one of us is creating something that then becomes part of a, of a whole, gave us a blueprint of, fun- of how to function as an organization that is not in the model of the, of the corporations or reproducing a model, a corporate model of functioning, which the majority, unfortunately, of everything that we do reproduces that because that's what we've been trained to do. Not because, you know, we are just dumb, but if you're trained and overly trained, you end up repeating the model that you're given. I didn't, I was 40 when I met this and I didn't know how to get out of that. And then all of a sudden I started seeing this, this way that they, t- I, actually, this is one of my teachers, Jennifer Johnson, let me introduce. Yeah, and this is one of my teachers. Oh, thank you. <laughs> But when I first came, Jennifer was like, started and gave me a lot of like really methodic, rigorous way of working. And then I needed to, for the first time, I'm serious, for the first time in in 20 years that I was making theater, I found myself in a room by myself trying to create something. It's like, wow, this is crazy. I don't know how to do this. So that's one thing, the training, and the autonomy of the art. I think that that's a pillar and a foundation for our sustainability. Then that creates a model of operation, in my opinion. Uh, we could debate about this, and I'm sure that there are many different... I'm talking to a lot of people that are not from theater about this, like even David Bollier is right now talking with me about this thing. There is a model of operation that emerges from this creation process which is, you know, we create our thing and then we edit it. We have outside editors too, and we have dramaturgs working with us and a director at the end. Now, this is sort of our, our shape of collective. When we are working on the what I call the four burners, international, national, regional, and hyperlocal, we are working in a similar way. So each one of us is doing something. We're not all with a, with a goal. You know, we have goals. But, but sometimes you can put a, a goal in suspense. You don't need to, you know, your deadlines, you can, you can shift them around. Sometimes, sometimes randomly something appears and they say, oh, we want you in Poland in this time. And, and the other things that you have plans are not really 
crystallizing. This, I'm sure it happens to everybody. So then you shift. So something that, that has happened is that we have uh, developed an, uh, a, an incredible resilience. And that, again, you know, that can be proven by what happened to us during the pandemic, that we immediately shifted from the whole structure that we had and we ended up doing completely, we were on tour and we ended up building, building apartments as carpenters in, in, old, in old pieces of thing that allowed us to then house our new partners that were coming, like Jupiter, Jupiter Performance Studios, like uh, the Theater Offensive from Boston. So we have now room and that enables us to have a very safe operation during COVID or as safest as it can be. Mm-hmm. That, that explains, it gives you a little bit of resilience, like the idea of resilience. So when you're working with international, so that's that's where I kick in in sustaining. I sustain the relationship not with a goal in mind, but with the idea of a process. So the process is not just for the artists; is for the is is also for the model of operation. That then you know it, somehow it bridges us out of the market economy. So we don't need to be depending on the tickets that we sell or the grants that we get, or it's a combination of, uh, of an amalgam of uh, resources. Like our neighbors contributing in kind is enormous. And, and we never quantified it, although a lot of people are asking us to do that. But, you know, to get 5,000, approximately $5,000 of bread a year is a chunk of change, right? Just to give an example, among other things, a tractor, mm-hmm. I don't know a cow for a scene that you don't need to pay, housing, a neighbor offering you the housing for, for a visitor, so you don't need to pay for the hotel. I mean, add up, and that that is sort of a base for sustainability. Can you talk a little bit about who your partners are, who they've been and who they currently are, and, and how you maintain them? I mean, uh, Carlos, you talked a little about, about maintaining that connection international connection um it's so hard to divert from that sort of language of like quantifying things but how do you how do you reciprocate i mean how do you trade a cow for a scene um definitely i think also there's such a wide variety of what could fall under the umbrella of partnerships at double edge but we can kind of maybe speak to some of them and others and uh i really agree with what Carlos is saying about there's not kind of an end game to these partnerships. There's a just evolving process. Together with partners, we enjoy shared experiences of different kinds, artistic, uh, grassroots, community, facilities, farming. farming, you know, because I think our definition of theater is just very, very expansive. Like some people may feel like, well, what does farming have to do with theater? But it is the way that we do theater. It's, uh, it's how we live our theatrical life and make our work here. It is, it's just part of our picture and who we are. Some partnerships like this partnership, for example, uh, with Magdalena is an ongoing partnership that has currently resulted in this big festival. And there's not necessarily like an expectation that like, now we're gonna do this on an annual or semi-annual basis. Like 
the relationship keeps going and growing. Uh, the ripple effects of the artists who were here experiencing something like Magdalena and now connecting with a network of artists who they didn't previously know that, uh, the, you know, the founder of Magdalena talks about this big ripple effect. Like now this person is traveling to Japan uh, yeah. in the fall and this person India. has been I mean, invited to like India. Like this person wants to host the next, next Magdalena. So there becomes these kind of networks. And I think that that is true for our partnerships. Yeah. Um, so we have partnerships like a local partnership maybe with a construction company, right? Like local person's company that's helping us build everything um, and is dedicated to the space because he has been contributing to it for 27 years. So uh, it's more than just a kind of, and probably has donated more, <laughs> you know, has been required because of this trust that we just rely on to survive in ourselves and in others. So the partnerships take really different forms. Um, some might be fully artistic and what we do with this person is uh, training exchange or performance development, um, but that's that's kind of rare. Usually they're sort of a larger picture and we may not always know exactly, sometimes a, a project like the Art and Survival Fellowship that we do with Jupiter Performance Studios, a main partner of ours, evolved out of how do we want to work together and how can we work together and how can we include other people, young people who are trying to find their way through art and activism and create their own voice, how can we together provide that platform for other people to be involved with us? I, I want to credit Stacy there because Stacy Klein, our director, she is an incredible designer of projects and relationships. And in that level, I mean, I would like to say we have a genius on our team. Agreed. And But there is another level that I want to talk about a little bit, which is, for instance, you know, you and us. Let's let's talk about something. You know us. So when you talk to me, what do you feel? I'm well, interviewing. I feel, yeah, I, I feel a relationship, a connection, a friendship, a partnership. It's, um, it's very, uh, but it's something, you know, you reached out. It's very accessible. You don't have a filter there because we have sustained, right? It's not like when, when you, you, you try to reach somebody you don't know. You know how you feel, even you know an art. Let's say an artist that you want to interview, but you don't know. Well, they might not. They might reject me, right? So a lot of the work that that I, I foment or I try to encourage, and it's done. The ensemble does it. Uh, I think we all do it in a certain level. Is to not discard what is not part. The opposite. On the on the on the contrary not only not discard, but think about what you do that is not part of the work. And that I started to develop and I'm writing about is the, a concept of radical care, which is the opposite to the, to the market economy relationship. So it's not goal oriented. Like there's a lot of things that I care about Jennifer that has nothing to do with our work. Like if Jennifer comes and talks to me about the sun that is going on a trip, and of course, there's all the excitement and the pride that this 
kid now is at the age that he can travel alone and he's going to the West Coast. But there's also the other side of that, right? There's the risk. So I need to be somehow embracing that gentle and with enough space to not be invasive, but to be attentive to that. Now, most of us have been trained to think that that takes away from the work or the work takes away from that, <laughs> right? Which to me is completely the opposite. And the Navy people are always telling me this. That is exactly the opposite. Actually, if you're taking care of someone and if you're loving someone, you get enriched and your work therefore gets enriched. So that's another pillar of sustainability in my opinion. And that was transmitted also to our work with our partnerships, but also our partners are bringing a lot of that to us and they're showing us like, you know, the Okiteo people are like, no, 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 this is very important that we're not talking necessarily to the point that we said we were gonna talk about. I want to come around to work again here soon, but I want you to walk me through a little bit about the new partnership with Okateu and the connections that you've been making there and how, what led to it. Uh, I'll start with how yeah, it yeah, came yeah. to be. Um, we were doing a large project that we were working on for probably two years called the Ashfield Town Spectacle and Culture Fair. Um, it was a partnership with the town, and uh, it was an incredible and extremely well planned and produced by Stacy and Adam Bright, who's our producer, and Cariel. And there were a thousand details, and uh, it was a, ultimately became, after many, many long months of process, a two-day, sort of 10-hour-a-day festival. That included, um, I think, five double-edged performances, each made by different ensemble members. We had, I think, something about like 200 local artists performing, performing reading. Yeah. Uh, there was a concert, all-day concert going on of local musicians. There were there was a small film festival. There were poetry readings in the library. There were painting exhibitions. There were there was food. There, I mean, just there really was, anything there was a, you could a, a imagine. Threat. There was a thread, a little bit of a thematical thread about the history of the town. Right. As part of the research for the whole thing and uh, part of the performance creation, we were investigating the history and historical figures of Ashfield. And it was very interesting. There are many very interesting lives that have happened here. For instance, one, the first woman elected to office in the United States was a woman who was elected to the Asheville School Board. So it was like, you know, really fascinating things. There was an oral history project, et cetera. And we were working with the local historical society and they were generously sort of uh, leading us through a lot of their research. And we were curious and wanted to include uh, history of indigenous people in this area. And we were sort of firmly and kindly told that there were no native people in this area, that it was uh, possibly kind of a walkthrough area for people, but there were no, there was not a uh, recorded native presence. And we felt like that can't really be right, right? Like this feels, um, we're discovering that there's some big uh, historical record missing here. So, we began to reach out to 
local indigenous leaders in the area um, to try to help us to understand what is the actual history, um, not just the absence of history. Yeah. And that's when you began a relationship. Well, then, then between you and me, if I don't recall poorly, we met Rhonda because met Rhonda, Rhonda. Is, is, is a Native American mom in, a, in the school where her daughter is, is a classmate of, of Elliot. Of my son. Jennifer's son. So we got to talk and she's like, well, it'll be great to do something here, but I think we need to really get the people that were from here. That she's an Alaskan native. Right. Originally, although she grew up in Plainfield, which is right next door. So she knew that there was this conference going to happen in UMass. Then I will tell you about that. I don't know if it's worthwhile telling me that it was embarrassing. And we went and we met this storyteller writer Nipmuc, who lives in uh, Webster, Mass. Yeah. Later became the director of Okiteo. And, and we went, Jennifer and I went together and we listened to his lecture, which was in a classroom that was despicable. Like I wouldn't do even a class for students there, but that was the, the that was the native center, painful. And when we finished, we stayed and stayed and he very kindly allowed us, you know, talking. We were sort of shy and, and how do you talk? How do I talk to you after what I heard? Because every time you talk to them, there is this story of, of displacement, erasure, you know, the boarding schools is always looming there. I mean, it wasn't that far ago that it was happening. So we came up. It was very interesting because immediately we had the instinct to say, what do you need? Instead of saying, I'm going to do this with you. <laughs> now, what do you want to do? What can I do with you that will help you? And he said, this is the first time that somebody says that. And I say, what I need is, what we would be great is to have a space to, because look at this. So we say, you know, we have spaces that we need to build them, but we have barns and stuff. And that was the beginning. And then the, the whole, so then we did, we did a construction project and they, and, Instead of hiring our local carpenters, we started asking, you know, do you know carpenters that are Nipmuc? And he said, yeah, my cousins. So we started hiring cousins that were starting to come from the east because a lot of them are displaced to the east. A lot of them are displaced to the central part of the, of the U.S. So they started coming and we built. We built the center. And what we did, we did get grants, but we did have some floating money that we were getting from donations and stuff like that that allowed us to pay salaries and to pay well to pay part-time salaries and to pay um, materials we have a really great team here in, in that supported them and uh, yes yeah, stacy and adam um stacy really became kind of a in a position of being able to lend her you know, extreme knowledge of developing a sustainable nonprofit organization because not only really is she an artistic genius, she's also a business yes, titan. Like <laughs> she amazing. Really incredible. And um and that also helped them land in places that they started getting grants and it, it, this started to grow exponentially. And uh people coming and then the conference that they are all in her round. Uh, we started this relationship with Hal Round. 
this was all their ideas. And what we were doing is like, okay, these are resources that you can, if you want to do this, this episode, we'll introduce you to the people. Needless to say that as soon as we open our mouth and, you know, we talk to VJ or to Jamie or to whoever we talk to, everybody's like, what? Yes, let's do that. Like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's success even before you start. So it just keeps growing. Mm -hmm. it, just a, a, a filmmaker from France just came to do a documentary. It's like, it's like crazy. Right, and we've, perf <laughs> we've performed with Larry and right. we do with Larry and Rhonda, with Okateo, we do the uh, Living Presence of Our History series, which they generously, you know, sort of curate these incredible panels of artists, activists, uh, native thinkers and writers to come into our community so that they actually educate our community uh, where there was an abyss before of knowledge of the presence of native people in this area specifically. And what happened? So one day we're sitting and we have a lot of moments where we're sitting, you know, just talking about whatever and not really focusing and Larry starts, Larry Spotted Crowman is the director, one of the directors of Kiteo. He starts talking about her, his family and the boarding schools and what happened to his, his great-grandfather who fought for the North in the Civil War. But when he came back, his kids were sent to boarding schools and his lands were taken away. So his wife was almost like landless all of a sudden. So Stacy was sitting with him and he said, wow, that is a story for a theater piece. And also the way you're telling, telling it. And he's, he said, are you serious? And she's like, yeah, totally. Would you help me with that? And, and, and Stacy said, yeah, we will. So that became this, this performance, uh, Freedom in Season, that now he keeps working and it's going to become more and more of a play. And that's one of the performances in our upcoming outdoor constellations festival. So you all need to come. Everybody that's listening to this needs to come and see it. That was a long plug. <laughs> see, a long pitch. A long pitch. <laughs> that's my five minute, that's my elevator switch. Yeah, good, good. No. Wonderful. You know, you talk, I, I can I can see how this these relationships and these partnerships and this community um all builds in this rural landscape. But I'm wondering the rural setting for the farm and for the work that Double Edge does, how does the setting contribute to your artistic training that you might not get otherwise from being, you know, back in Boston where the company started? An impetus to for Double Edge to move from Boston in its beautiful parish hall space, which is where I first experienced Double Edged, to out here was to be able to bring, first of all, for members of the ensemble and company to be able to live affordably because a theatrical life in a, an urban um, center in the U.S. is uh, nearly impossible. I think it's more and more impossible every day. We hear constantly our students, young artists, even people who've been on it for at it for a long time. It's that life is, is extremely difficult and discouraging. Trying to, uh, trying to produce theater in um, a, a market economy that's uh, driven by real estate 
is um, is not does not lend itself to radical behavior, <laughs> radical art making. Stacy really wanted the the company to be able to have a more sustainable uh, base and to be able to invite people to train us and work with us and perform here. And so that became something that was possible with more space. Now, of course, that's not the end of it. Yes, that's continued. We just had a week of that. There's not one performance that I didn't learn something crucial um, in that whole festival. But we began to have a relationship with the natural world that really defines a lot of our work right now. Uh, we, we spend the summer months doing an outdoor piece that has indoor aspects of it, but we create a piece in collaboration with fields and streams and uh, beavers. beavers. They're really good. The frogs in the pond. Um, and this sounds romantic and it is not, it is a challenge. I think the, the hardest way that now is a way that I love to work is, um, is outdoors. Yeah. And Carlos really taught me that. Carlos has a history of working outdoors. I do not. Um, it is challenging. Um, and it is also exhilarating. There's no pretense. <laughs> you cannot pretend that you're not being rained upon. <laughs> you, uh, we have new goats. They are, uh, our board president gave the goats to us. He raises goats. And he said, they, they live right next to one of the playing areas of the summer performance. And I've really noticed that one of them's loud. And I've thought about it. And he said, yes, we very particularly wanted to get rid of that one because it's so talkative. And I thought there is uh, one of the first challenges of the summer 2022 <laughs> summer spectacle is that loud goat. You know, uh, you are performing and uh, one night there's a beautiful full moon that's not there the other night. Um, the work is extremely alive. And uh, I think that that keeps us in a place of awareness that allows our work to uh, go beyond uh, dailiness that we, we, we train out of ourselves, but, you know, everyone faces every day if they're, when, they're, when they're performing. Another aspect of the rural life is, well, contrary to what you think when you live in, in a city, in an urban type of mentality, market economy, urban, is possible. It's not impossible. You need, the thing you really would encourage everybody is to modify expectations. So if you're coming to the rural, you, the type of comfort, it's not that it's uncomfortable, but the type of comfort that you have in a city, you won't have. Right. On the other hand, for instance, I, one day I was making the math in my mind of how much time I spend in red lights and subways and trains in the city. And instead of that, I was here sitting, looking at a maple tree and how generative that was and how non-generative was the, the bus, the train and the cabs or when I was driving, you know, sitting on the red light. Plus the bad energy of driving on a highway, trying to commute and get in and out of a big city. I, you need to compute those things because those are poisons that go into your system. Here is different. Here you don't need that much. You need things, but you don't need that much certain things. 
So uh, there is a certain economy, the economy shifts, but then the radical care, and you need that, there needs to be a genuine openness to be with others and to accept, to accept help, which then, you know, we can talk a lot and we can say, yes, I want help, but then your pride gets in the way and you block the help immediately because you want to do, you know, I'm a man and I want to carry your bag all the time. I've been told that and it's true. And then when I'm aching or I have sciatica, I, I even want to carry the bag. And, but it's like, you know, you're already 65 also. Can you chill out? And so when you go rural, you need somehow to modify your expectations and your pride and your ego and work differently with that. Not that you, you cannot cancel that, obviously, because it's part of our, who we are, it's our identity. But you need to modify it in a way that, that then you intertwine the, the, a support mechanism. So for us, and I think we have a pretty good budget and, and a pretty high budget for a group like ours. Uh, our operating now is a million three hundred thousand, so it's not a bad thing, uh, even in a city. But still, I don't think we would be able to do as much as we do here because there's all this support mechanism. But in order for that to happen, there needs to be a behavioral change that, again, has to do with not if we're good or bad people, but we need to revise, revisit, and try to transform the ways we were trained. Our idea of privacy, our idea of intimacy is different. Not that we shouldn't have it, but you have much more shared areas with others. Or you need to share them because you depend on that support. So that that needs to this, that share space needs to be open. So that uh, it, when you understand that, like for instance, we we deal a lot with people that don't think politically like us. Actually, that they're on the other sidewalk of life, and still we collaborate enormously. Like part of our partnerships are with plumbers and with constructors, with carpenters, and we have partnership with them because they know that we will provide for work. So there's a lot of like give and take and there's a lot of donations or collaborations or, you know, a plumber that would come at any time because they know we're performing. And if we have an issue, they're here. There's no doubt. It could be Sunday night and they come. And that is not because we, we, we force them to do. There's not a contract to do that. It's they want to do it and they want us to succeed. I mean, they are, you know, they're benefiting from that. We work with one farmer for a long time. Um, he's done a lot here and he comes whenever there's rain, uh, and we're performing outside. He's the one who decides if we perform or not. He has the last word because he's the one that really knows. And he knows the weather really well. He, he's not really forecasting the weather, but he tells you with an hour with precision because he's looking at three raiders on different computers and with precision will tell you it's gonna really, you have the chance that it's gonna be lightning and you don't want the audience in a lightning storm. So cancel. Or he says, Kido, like, you know, I'm in the middle of a scene and he said this, I didn't see this coming, but you have half an hour, tell your friends, <laughs> right? And in the, in, on the spot, we modify the performance and we change it and either we finish, we ended up in the barn so people are protected or we rush through the end or towards the end, we cut a couple of scenes. And so that's like, again, it's a training of resilience. As an actor, you need to say, okay, 
screw the lines. I'm going to go for the end. And here's the end. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, and that's a farmer. And he was the one telling me once I said, well, it's great that now you like theater, right? He is like, I don't like theater. I'm like, Ray, you have come to seven of our last nine performances. What are you talking about? And he wait for a second and thought the answer. And he said, what you, what you make is not theater. You make something else. I said, okay, I'll give you that. But we tricked him because we do make theater. <laughs> we do make theater. <laughs> whatever you're making, though, he likes it. Yeah, whatever it yeah, is. Because he's making it with us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. That's amazing. I'm wondering when someone comes to train with you, what is the thing that they walk away with that is unique, that unique thing that they take out into their practice or into their world? Training is a lifelong pursuit. We just had a master class in that with Yu Yachkani. Right? Oh my, oh my. She's talking about Did her you, uh, 50 years was, of training. It was I, I wanted to talk yeah, to you We didn't have time. time. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, someone may come here having never trained with us before, which is great. Someone may have come here and people do who have trained with us at great length. Their every experience, it's open to every experience. Um, so I think what, what people take away is there's a lot of things, but if I had to really boil it down to one, I would say that what we hope people take away and what I think people do take away and keep coming back for is a new way of understanding and seeing themselves. We, our training is not uh, form-based training. Certainly we have uh, physical foundations that are repeated or explored um, that sort of travel have traveled. I was, tra I was trained by Stacy and actors of this generation. And I'm also trained by the younger people in the ensemble now. Um, but so the a language has developed over 40 years of training. Um, and it is utilized in a variety of different ways, but it all, when it comes to an individual, they take what they want and what they need from it. So it really becomes very individualized there. And that's what I think people are touched by is um, being challenged to into some new physicality, into some new vocal training, into some new singing that they were assuming for themselves that they could not participate in. And that energy is what I think transforms people, people's uh, idea of themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you... I, I you I've left you speechless. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> what? <laughs> I would say as, as the recipient of training, I would say that's wholeheartedly true. And that, you know, I walked away um, wishing I had had your training at a different point in my life mm -hmm. so that I could have encountered other things after it, mm -hmm. knowing more about myself. And I, I think that's wholeheartedly true. I thank you for sharing that. That's really. Absolutely. Really it's, it's true for me, too. I was, uh, you know, a, a young person and came to training and it's uh, it's changed my life. Yeah, I can say I can say the same thing. I uh, I mean, I'm similar 
to you, Jeff, but I'm older than you. I, I encountered training when I was 40. So yeah. I had a lot. And then I'm like, oh, had I known this before? But on the other hand, it was, you know, this past 25 years of my life has been of an, an amazing spiritual and imaginative journey. You know, it, it's been a, uh, a journey that, that brought me to places that I, could, I, I couldn't have imagined that I was going to see inside of myself. Now, yeah. it's interesting because what is training? You know, what is mm. a training? Like when you do a workout, what, what are you doing? Ooh. So the elements of training, you would say there are certain elements of repetition of something because you're trying to somehow master a skill. Um, there is an, definitely there is an element of exploration of something you don't know. But basically, one time we was listening to a, a Tibetan monk and, and he was talking about meditation and, and tap upon training. And he said, you know, you people think that meditation is to put your mind in blank. Is that mm -hmm. how you say in English? And um, empty, your empty, mind, empty yeah. your mind. And that's not true. That's not true. The mind can never be empty. And it's, it's not true that you're going to get rid of, um, of your, you know, you need to pay the bill. And you, you remember just now that, you know, the, the electric bill is waiting for you and you're a couple of days pass and you're sitting to do the training, that's going to be in your mind, no matter what. And then there is other thing. You had a really uh, sour discussion with your, with, with your partner and that's not going to go away. Or you have had an amazing experience an hour before you enter the room and it's not going to go away. So what is that? So the monk says, we all have a monkey brain and you cannot give it a banana and the monkey brain is going to be quiet. So you need to really entertain your brain. That's why when, when we do breathing, we ask people to count. That's a way to give the monkey brain a task. So it frees you, but then you include your body by breathing. You don't detach the body. So that brings another side of your brain to the forefront for the first time for you. Not for others. Nobody can see that. Only you see that and experience that. So when I'm doing training, that is what ends up happening after, let's say, 20, 30 minutes of me exerting myself physically, is that the monkey brain is busy doing a repetitive thing. And the other areas of my thinking appear and discover a side of myself that was there in the back, but I was not really being able to focus on. Yeah. Yeah, the that's really helpful to hear because I remember there was never a moment that was, I mean, sometimes we would train and practice in silence, but I think ultimately there was always some audio or something that was connecting to that, right? There's always audio. There's always music or something that we were connecting to while our bodies were moving at the same time everything was so corporeal we're just in our bodies but the brain did have something to connect with i i, I and, and i remember the instruction like don't let the music necessarily guide the emotion um which was very hard to do because that monkey brain wants to follow the emotion doesn't it that's i'm just yeah. making that connection right now it, it it wants to follow the emotion that is already stereotyped by the music the music 
particularly commercial music, the majority of the music has been stereotyped. Right. Typed. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, that's what we try to do. But it's funny, we even had that discussion recently in rehearsal. Yeah. Where, you know, some of us prefer having music, some of us prefer not having music, some of us. So we, we, we hit upon a compromise of, you know, music here, not music here, turn it on when you want, turn it off, you know, um, because or, or start without music. You know, your all. your practice evolves. Like that's what this woman from Yuyachkoni was talking about. There's a point in your life where past exhaustion is the point, the creative point. Then you get to a different phase. Then you get to a different phase. The phase that she describes herself in right now is uh, sort of circuitous. It's about balance and unbalance. It's gentle. And, you know, then it may return, but it's always the, uh, usually when people first get here, um, there is this kind of introduction of this, you know, rigorous physical training or rigorous singing. And that's really important. Going and jump, you know, going into the woods, that's all part of it. Um, it's also not the end of it. Um, and anything can be turned into training. Anything at all can be thought of as a training and, and reinterpreted as uh, a pursuit in training. When you're developing a piece, then my question is, is I guess because it is so rooted in impulse and in the body, how do you edit for the sake of the story, the piece? Editing might not even be the right word. I know Stacy, you know, comes in with a particular idea or may see something new that day how how does she sort of set her vision alongside what has been created in that in that rehearsal mm-hmm. um well you know ultimately uh when we're creating a performance and we're bringing in lots of materials that are physically based or vocally based dramaturgically based there's literature there are visual aspects Um, So there's a lot of research that goes in all different ways. And we each have kind of our portals into how we work. Um, Everyone has a different uh, kind of way that speaks to them within this framework. And uh, what we're trying to do is, uh, of course, create a physical metaphor for uh, an emotion or a situation or a dramaturgical idea. Um, and we, we push that physical metaphor to a place, explore it fully, bring in objects, bring in uh, a different uh, environment, work with partner work with it on, while that other person's doing their physical metaphor, um, bring in uh, poetry, bring in uh, our own writing, uh, you know, whatever. Stacy all the time is working on her work, which we will all know each other's resources. We will know the big picture of what Stacy's vision is. Uh, and it, we work through our own kind of autonomous, each of us way to uh, interpret kind of that collaboration. And those two things uh, often push up against each other. Um, this is not a kind of a thing. It's not really interpretive. It's not like Stacy's giving us a script and saying like this, but we're bringing things and she's bringing things and we often don't agree on what those things are and that uh, luckily we all really uh, fall back on the trust that we've developed with each other to find a way forward every day but rather than 
thinking of Stacy kind of as an editor. Um, she's uh, she's generative in her director way. So she is um, really holding the world that contains these, uh, you know, otherwise disparate threads. And, and then um, that world gets smaller and smaller and smaller as we begin to understand it more, I think. And she begins to understand us more and how um, each of us is kind of relating and we're understanding each other more until the world becomes a kind of manageable bubble <laughs> that I think we all then begin to understand the terrain in and can make more concrete choices about with this shared, um, you know, there's a, a just a, um, a kind of reciprocal idea of of what's right and what's wrong in this world. If, if that makes, I think that's the best I can do. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. I, mm -hmm. and I appreciate the perspective on it from being on the inside and, and being able to, I know you're not Stacy, but I appreciate, you know, the big idea from the outside too, like mm -hmm. knowing that there's, it's rooted in the, the source material in the dramaturgy and the content that's right. that you've come up with. That's really great. That's right. The thing is, uh, a lot of times it seems uh, the the pushback happens because it seems as an actor that you're doing something. Uh, well, a if you're focusing on impulse, then the the a certain repetition, which I don't want to use that word because it's it's tricky. But but how do you go back to the scene where you say to the other actor, blah blah blah, right? You say to the actor. Do you want this cup of tea? So every night you're going to do that. It's part of a structure, of a structure that translates. As an actor, what, what I've been finding over the course of the last 25 years is that what repeats is, a, is an outside. What repeats okay. is a, it's like a veil that we put. But inside of me, that doesn't repeat. Inside of me, the emotion is each time different. So I'm, I'm seeing Leonora in the, in the work that we do together. And one night I'm saying the text with a certain intention from within me and, 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 and it produces an emotion in me. The next day, the I go with the same intention and the emotion is different. So instead of repressing and trying to repeat the emotion, because that would be crazy, it's impossible to repeat an emotion. It's like the weather. It comes or it doesn't, you know, you might cry or you might not cry that day. Uh, I'm just open to whatever, what is coming to me that night emotionally. And instead of controlling that, I try to ride the wave of whatever is happening. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. It might be nostalgic that night or the night, the night, the, the following night will be euphoric for whatever, or giddy, for whatever reason. And then... I need to write it and, and make somehow I cannot destroy the veil that we have created yeah. because the veil, like in, in the, in the, in the light, the veil allows you to see the light because otherwise you don't, you're not able to see the light. It blinds you. You know, so earlier you were talking about market economy and transactional work and that being a sustaining factor. But you know, what I really want to, I'm wondering what you might define your work then as, and I know one of the things that I've always really 
appreciated is how Stacy calls it a living culture. And um, I wonder if that connects a dot to what you might define that as, as, you know, anti-market culture or anti-market economy. Um, I'm wondering, what would you call the way of working that you have? Double-edged theater. Uh, I don't know. I mean, um, one thing that we we try to not do is to put the the artwork in a position of uh, being the main sustain of the survival. So that the compression of the ticket sale as being the main thing to or whatever, uh, we don't need to satisfy a funder with what we do. We actually we don't care. Uh, we do what we do, and if somebody wants to fund it, great. And if not, we're going to find a way to fund it. For the most part, in in all honesty, it's very difficult. Like we haven't find funders that would like to fund what we do as artists. Actually, like I'm, I'm almost we're only beginning to enter that realm. Well, I think we get funding for other things, yeah, but, but exactly. we get funding for other things, but we don't get funding for what we do on stage, and the. The audience doesn't cover a, a quarter of what we invest. Right, we 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 tour a lot, or did in our pre-pandemic life, and will again. Um, although we really want to change even the way that we're doing that because we don't want it. We were on a big tour, uh, you know, and we did one performance, and then it was time for everyone to go home for uh, for COVID. Um, but it also gave us time to realize that we didn't want to any longer kind of tour to support ourselves, although it, it supports us well. We want now to tour uh, based kind of on community, based on collaboration. Or Relationships. Even, yeah, um, because that's, the, that's where our work is uh, sort of best presented. Um, not uh, just kind of on a venue circuit, because we always, we, we have to be able to connect with a community and an audience before performing. The other thing I want to say, Jeff, is I, I would like to not use the word anti-market economy mm -hmm. uh, because I don't want to waste my time being an anti. I'm trying to create something. Whatever it is, it hopefully it's good. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, but yes, it's not based in the concept of market economy. Definitely, it's based on a concept of solidarity, care for each other, imagination, imagination, metaphor, art. Um, interestingly enough, you know the the my Nipmuc friends that were telling me, you know, we don't have a word in our language for art because everything we did was considered art. So, you know, if you're doing maple syrup, that's an art, yeah. right? If you're carving a canoe, that's an art. If you're singing a song and a prayer, that's an art. So why do you need to define art? I mean, just do everything with art. And that, if you go a little bit deep, I want to leave it there. I don't want to say, well, that's what we do. But if you go a little bit there, a little bit, just uh, peeking, then a new perspective a possibility happens and we get funding for a lot of the stuff that we do that is not related to what we do on stage. But we keep doing what we do on stage and that is amazing because it happens, it's sort of miraculous. 
what happens here and the audience that comes and the, the success and the repercussion, you know, sold out after sold out performance. And we're not really actively selling what we do. It happens and but it doesn't it doesn't help us in the sense that it doesn't it's not the main support of the, of the survival of the ex, this experience and again i want to say that the, the the main support of the survival is the relationships and the the care for each other and for our neighbors and for the land thank you what is something y'all wish everyone knew about double edge double edge theater <laughs> The two answers were exactly the same. I mean, people don't know about us. I've been listening. I've been hearing this week. I had heard about, I don't know how many people came and say, you know, how is it that people don't know? How didn't I know before about you guys? I just started to know now, you know, in the last two or three years. How come nobody knows? I said, well, I think... I think to, if people could know about this experience, it would be different. But I think that that has to do, well, this is a long conversation. I, I want to have it with you one day. We can do a second session if you want. Yeah, but, you're in for it. But again, this, the system of the market economy has guided the communication in a certain way, right? We can talk about communications at some point and about Marshall McLuhan and all the analysis and the studies on communication that have existed and, and continue to exist and to develop. Now with social media, it's even more. So when we thought we had a democratized way, like internet was the democratized way of communicating, all of a sudden we realized, oh no, actually, we, we actually, you know, I'm thinking that needs to be regulated, even if I didn't want it to be regulated. Because it's being, of course, it's being uh, savaged by people that are very, intentionally you know always the violent has the the upper hand whoever is violent has a has the first move already and when you're not violent and you're a pacifist you you're playing behind always right because whoever wants to do a bad thing will have that initiative before anybody so communication has done is doing a disservice for the community a, we, can, we saw that in the health system, right? It's, it's really difficult. It's a difficult situation. It, it happens also in the cultural field. So I, I think that the fact that people don't know about us is not a, it's not a coincidence. It's part of how the things are, are, you know, what is the confluence? Why is it that if, if three major newspapers, national newspapers, are thinking about writing a, a, an article about the village, it never happens? And I, Jeff, I cannot tell you how many times we have been approached and we are almost to the threshold. Any of the names that you can imagine is about to write an article or even NPR, and it doesn't get there. But then you have platforms like HowlRound, thank God, and others, but that's not enough also. So we need to think about communications. And yes, what I would like for people to know is that this exists and that this is possible. Yeah. What do you want people to know? Well, I want people to know that in all of this varied work that we do in these relations that we have, as our facilities grow, we now have, you know, sort of three separate areas in Ashfield, as we continue to grow, um, at the heart of that 
is our never ending faith in art and that everything springs from that and our dedication to our artwork and our dedication to the artwork of others. Everything that comes from that, the new kitchen, you know, uh, the goats, the partnerships, the tours, um, it all comes from that uh, impulse to create. Yeah. Uh, folks, I think that's a beautiful place for us to put a pin in it. Thank you so much again Thank for you, your time. Jeff. And, uh, you know, it just is, I, I came to you at a, play, at a time where I was ready to expand my knowledge and you have continued to do so to, even through to today. I, I think I need to let you both know that I'm getting a little emotional talking to you right now because I had every juncture, I just am overflowing with gratitude because at every juncture that I, that I can, I will sing the praises of the moment of the weeks that I spent with you. And I want to let you know that you made a very important impression upon me and, and my knowledge of myself, as you've mentioned, and my knowledge of art making and my concept of metaphor and change and creation and and the natural world and so i, I just can't I, I don't know if i can find the this is the to, to infinity i could describe just so many things that were influenced by my training there and i constantly refer back to and mention you at every opportunity that i can and you should know that i am eternally grateful and and speak your praises whenever i get the chance so Thank you. And I cannot wait to come back and visit. And I hope it is sooner than I expect. And I am I'm so grateful this for this time that we've been able to spend together today. So thank you so much. Jeff, thank you. And that thank you for sharing that. It's extremely meaningful. And uh it's very generous of you to share that with us. And uh, I I come back. Come back. It's I will, time. I will start texting you. <laughs> yeah. you'll, you'll never get rid of him now. I'm gonna. You said it. You said this is recorded. It's gonna be it's a gonna, daily it's gonna check be recorded. In. And it's, no, not daily, but weekly. Yeah, that's it's fine. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I would love to talk to you Absolutely. more often. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Wonderful, folks. Thank you so yeah. much for your time, and uh, have a great rest of your uh, celebration. And I wish you Thank well. You. We'll see you again soon. I'm sure. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Bye. 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 Something I think that is really amazing for Double Edge is that they make a sort of epic theater look effortless. The show that I came to know them for, 20th Century, spans a decade. So when they talk about how they turn someone's life and family history into a piece, my brain sort of said, yeah, yeah, of course they did. That said, it isn't effortless. It is effortful and beautiful. I love what Carlos said about working on the four burners of internationally, nationally, regionally, and hyperlocal, particularly about sustaining the model of operation and the shifting that is necessary about following performance opportunities. And the partnerships go not just down to the hyperlocal, but down to the frogs that they perform with in their outdoor festivals. The talkative goat that was given to them, all of the challenges are therein the opportunities for their partnerships and performances.
It kind of puts into perspective the Broadway freakouts towards audience members whose phones go off. There are no airplane modes for goats or frogs. They are so grounded in their community that they are necessary for big parts of it. The number of times they summon information from people in the community, mothers at schools, etc., is remarkable and not something I get with every interview. I'm thinking back to my very first episode with Michael from Del Arte International. Their partnerships were also very rooted with organizations in their part of Blue Lake, California. Okay, uh, hey, if you like these kinds of conversations... A quick reminder that I want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at FTGU underscore pod and me on Instagram at ensemble underscore ethnographer. Let me know what you're most curious about in the field of ensemble-based and collaboratively created work, won't you please? Please? Thanks. Finally, before I go... A big thanks once again to Quasimondo Physical Theater, who permitted me to use their Zoom line without limits. Much love to y'all. Thanks, y'all. And now it's time for that lightning round sound check. What is your favorite salutation? Hello, friends. Yeah, compañeros is, yeah. Companions, uh, but also compañeros has a connotation of somebody that. So the origin of the bread of the word is to break bread with someone, compan, right, with bread. So that's why I like compañeros, and it's, it's mostly used by the majority of the the Ameri the Hispan Hispanic America, uh, and also Brazil actually. Um, as a working class. What's your favorite form of transportation? Uh, I like walking. Mine is walking, and the second one, hands down, is train. But the third one is very close, is, is uh, boats. And what's your favorite exclamation? Hola! Hola. <laughs> Uh, what would what would you be doing if not double edge? I've always really romanticized being an art conservator that like you just go in and you by yourself quietly restore, you know, a precious artwork. What does ensemble mean to both of you? I, I think that for me, it's like um, it's like my chosen family. So I, something I like is that the commitments are not set in stone and you need to refresh them periodically i would say a group of people who are committed to making this one thing grow but we each have a different way that we make that thing grow what's the opposite of double edge market economy definitely mm. yeah the division isolation the self-made man the idea that you cannot ask for help transactions What's your favorite kind of ice cream? Um, there's an ice cream around here that I love from the Hager's uh, family farm stand. It's more of a store, but I still call it a farm stand. And they make a, a maple soft serve ice cream that is really delicious. I recommend it to anyone who is in the Greenfield area. <laughs> I know I know that this is not being filmed, but for those that are listening, <laughs> Jeff just now sway in a way when when maple uh, what's the name maple soft serve soft serve came out of jennifer's mouth 
in the description that I'm giving to you, uh, <laughs> Jeff was swaying like like he's, he was being transported to some kind of other uh, reality. This has been another episode of From the Ground Up. You can find, like, and follow this podcast at FTGU underscore pod or me, Jeffrey Moser, at Ensemble underscore ethnographer on Instagram and at Kinetic Mimetic on Twitter. Think you or someone you know ought to be on the show? Send us an email at FTGUpod at gmail.com. We also accept fan mail and requests. Access to all of our past episodes can be found on my website, jeffreymoser.com, as well as howround.com. The audio bed was created by Kiran Videla. You can find him on SoundCloud, Bandcamp, and flutesatdawn.org. This podcast is produced as a contribution to the HowlRound Theater Conference. You can find more episodes of this series and other HowlRound podcasts in our feed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Simplecast, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to search HowlRound Theater Commons Podcasts and subscribe to receive new episodes. If you love this podcast, post a rating and write a review on those platforms. This helps other people find us. You can find a transcript for the episode along with a lot of other progressive and disruptive content on HowlRound.com. Have an idea for an exciting podcast, essay, or TV event the theater community needs to hear? Visit HowlRound.com and submit your ideas to the Commons.